Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In his book, Deep, The Story of Skiing and the Future of Snow, Porter Fox notes that in the last 45 years, one million square miles of spring snow cover has disappeared from the northern hemisphere. Rocky Mountain spring snowpack is down by 20%. Europe has lost half its glacial ice. And the western U.S. could lose anywhere from 25 to 100 percent of its snowpack by the year 2100, effectively ending ski resorts like Park City. That's just the beginning. When snow disappears, what follows is a dangerous chain reaction of catastrophes like forest fires, drought, mountain pine beetle infestation, degraded river habitat, loss of hydroelectric power, dried up aquifers, and shifting weather patterns. To say nothing of effects on more than one billion people worldwide downstream of mountains who depend on snowmelt for their water supply. Porter Fox will be speaking on the future of snow during the USU Common Hour on November 5th, beginning at 11.30 a.m. in the Taggart Student Center Auditorium on the USU campus. Book signing will follow. And then later that evening on November 5th, he'll speak at a community presentation at 7.30 p.m. at the First Presbyterian Church in downtown Logan. Intermountain Bioneers is sponsoring that event, and the USU Common Hour is presented by the USU Sustainability Council, Quinney College of Natural Resources, Center of Civic Engagement and Service Learning, Department of Applied Economics in the College of Agriculture and Applied Sciences. It's part of Science Week at USU. Porter Fox, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thanks for having me. Uh, appreciate you uh, joining us. Uh, so I understand that this book is the result of a couple of skiers from Jackson Hole, Wyoming, uh, noticing that snow is disappearing from the western U.S., wondering how long it would be before it affected the mountains in their backyard. So uh, you, as a longtime Powder Magazine editor and writer, were asked if you were interested in writing a, writing a book. Is that, that correct? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's how it started. I, I lived in Jackson Hole for about five years after college, uh, first as a ski bum, then as a journalist and um, ended up at Powder a few years later, and a couple of uh, my old ski buddies called up and said, hey, um, there's there's something weird going on here, and we think somebody should write about it. So that's how the project got started, and a whole lot of research and travel and interviews later is um, what made uh, the book deep. Uh, and uh, this book is, is about climate change. It's about uh, you know the the coming uh, potential great melt and how that would affect the world. But it's also about skiing. That's where I want to start. Uh, you grew up in Maine, I believe. Yeah, yeah, northern Maine, and uh, skied at Sugarloaf Resort up there. And your parents, avid skiers, so they took you out at a pretty young age. But uh, I guess that first experience almost didn't take you. They had to force you to stay on the on the hill for a while. Yeah, I, I absolutely hated it. My mom likes to remind me. Um, but that's, you know, the, the tradition of skiing is it's pretty typical where the parents are, are into it. Even the grandparents were into it. They, they taught my mom when she was a kid. Uh, my mom taught me when, when I was a kid. I don't have kids yet, but my brother and sister have already taught their kids to ski. And, you know, it, it's this, um, this terrific sport that, that creates such a, uh, incredible passion around it that gets handed down generation to generation. That there are really very few sports um, that are like it, and that's that's what we wanted to do with this book was to to kind of define that uh, that brotherhood of skiers, that that uh, familial familial kind of tradition, and and direct some of that passion there at uh, at some of the challenges that we're going to be facing in the the next fifty to seventy five years. 
I'm just going to read a, a paragraph here. This is from page 33 of the book, Deep, uh, which is a great read, by the way. Uh, you say, The skiing cosmos is difficult to explain to anyone not immersed in it. The act of skiing differs from traditional sports in that unlike basketball, biking, or football, it requires specific orographic and meteorological phenomena. Because skiers depend on planetary forces much larger than themselves, and like surfers must work in harmony with them, a kind of otherworldly euphoria overtakes them when they do it well. I guess that, that you're, you're trying to explain, uh, you know, to a fellow uh, ski enthusiast, you don't have to explain. But for people outside, it's, it's kind of hard to explain why people get so addicted to skiing. That's, uh, and that's exactly what I tried to do with a lot of the book was, you know, when you talk to a skier, you say, oh, man, that was a great run. And, and they, know, they do know exactly what you're talking about. There's, there's that feeling that wells up in you when you link 5, 10, 20 great turns in powder or, or even on a groomer. Um, but to somebody who doesn't ski, uh, it's very hard to explain uh, the, that that feeling, and and I think the the reason is is that skiing really is so different from most traditional sports. I, I think it's most like surfing, probably. Um, and uh, but when you find it so difficult to explain it, it really is because there's there's something magical happening there. And um, the the best way that I could describe it was through kind of the forces that, that create a ski turn, that the, the kind of vectors and, and gravity that you feel when, when you're going down and turning through hard pack or crud or, or you know, best-case scenario and two feet of powder, um, that's, um, that's a really uh, otherworldly experience. What if you tell me about uh, your first experience on the northern island of Hokkaido in, in Japan? You say to, to to set this up. You say that uh, the sort of the gold standard in in the northern hemisphere of the Americas is Alta, eight percent water content. Hokkaido is five percent. So this this is powder. And you talk about it, that sensation of flying. Yeah, it's 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 crazy over there. I I um, went to Japan the first time. I think it was eight or nine years ago, and. It actually felt different. Skiing felt different in snow that was that light. I'd, I'd skied in Utah's Champagne Powder several times uh, at Alta and Snowbird, and and I even up at Solitude, and um, and that it's that's incredible. But in Japan, it was it's colder, it's drier. You get these big storms that come off the Siberian plains and pick up moisture over the Sea of Japan, and directly hit the Japanese Alps in Hokkaido, and you get these um, really large, incredibly light powder dumps there. So when you're skiing down, you know, as, as any skier knows, the lighter the powder, um, the more you kind of float in it. And so you're, you're skiing through four feet of snow, but you're, you're about, let's say, uh, two and a half feet down in it. And uh, with every turn, you're kind of fluctuating, I'd say, even up to 12 to 18 inches up and down, floating through that airy snowpack. It's, it's really more like dense air than it is snow. And, and uh, when, you're, when you're skiing through the backcountry or side country, going off little rocks and stumps, it honestly is sometimes hard to tell when you're in the air and when you're in the snow. So it's at one point in the book you you talk about how you know this humans kind of came close to being gods right you, you're flying I guess and the first people to ski probably 
probably ha- had that uh, had that sensation just like you do. Yeah, absolutely, and and if you look back at the old uh, epic columns of the Norse people um, back in the Middle Ages, 1000 AD, 1200 AD, um, they're describing skiing there. The soldiers of Norway and up around Scandinavia used skis in military operations. They used skis to to get around, to cut wood. I mean, the, the act of skiing or using um, boards to kind of navigate the landscape is... Um, I mean, it's it's almost 8,000 years old at this point. But but those legends back then would often depict the skiers as these uh, mythic figures alongside um, gods like Uller and, um, and other people in Norse, Norse uh, mythology. And, you know, the, the kind of explanation for that is that, that it is such an otherworldly experience in these people were moving faster than any human had ever moved at that point, at least that lived to tell about it. Um, they, they would use, um, in terms of hunting, they would use the skis to set up at the top of a hill, and if there was a herd of um, reindeer or, or a caribou or something like that, you would glide down the hill on these incredibly long skis uh, with a spear in hand and it would allow you to catch up with the herd that was kind of bogged down in those deep snows. Um, and that feeling of, of flying and moving that quickly, especially at that, if you think in that period in history, um, was, was really a godlike kind of thing. Hmm. You, uh, the first chapter, uh, I'm going to ask you why, you why you chose to open this. You have a forward and then you have a, a first chapter. is in the Cascades. And it's mm-hmm. been a dry winter, but then then there's a storm that's that's already started, and and you set the scene in in this circle of RVs. These are all ski bums, including your, including yourself. By the way, you say some seven million skiers in the U.S. About five hundred thousand of those would be, I guess, ski bums. How do you how do you define that? I guess these are people who eat, breathe, live skiing. I, I, yes, and then typically have scruffy beards and tears in their jackets and <laughs> eat a lot of ramen. Um, there, there's no way to, to uh, sort of empirically define a ski bum, um, but generally you're talking about somebody that, you know, has, has made some sacrifices to be able to ski uh, a lot. And, and it's a, kind of the guiding light in their life. I mean, there's people who go through a, a classic college education and, and kind of throw it all away to go live out west and be a skier and work in the service industry for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, that, that's a ski bum. That's somebody who um, skiing has become the, the main purpose and goal of their life is to get in uh, some great days on the hill. And um, I, I bet there are that number of ski bums out there. They come in all stripes. I mean, there's the classic, you know, old ski bum that lives, you know, four people to a room and have a scruffy beard or long hair and, and uh, deliver pizzas at night and uh, ski all day. Uh, there's also some armchair ski bums that work on Wall Street and spend half their money flying out west to go uh, heli skiing or go skiing at Alta. And, and again, it's sort of that guiding light in their life. Uh, those, those folks that were sitting around the fire in, uh, in the Cascades were uh, prepping for a, a classic powder day, and it uh, unfortunately 
turned into the the Tunnel Creek Avalanche um, terrible accident that happened up at Stevens Pass. And um, but the folks that were there and involved in that really embodied that that ski bomb life uh, more than almost anyone else that I was familiar with. Yeah, this, this highlights danger. I mean, there definitely is danger in this sport. You were now you were you were there the you know the evening before. Were you there? At, at that tragedy, or you, you'd gone somewhere else and quite pick that up. Well, I was I was actually not there the evening before. My colleagues were at Powder, the editor of Powder, oh, okay. the former editor right. of Powder, and so through their eyes, I recreated that accident. I see, and, um, and they were actually standing on top of that slope and were the next ones, um, you know, so that we're supposed to drop in and ski it when the avalanche happened. Um, so they were involved in the rescue extensively and, um, you know, really had uh, first-person experience of that whole thing. And as uh, ski technology improved and you got the wider skis and all the, all the technology, people were able to go faster. And as human nature is, people wanted to go faster and wanted to test the limits. And, uh, and, and then you have, I guess, an increased opportunity for danger. It, yeah, absolutely. And and then the first half of the book, I painted that, that evolution of skiing and how it got to where it is today, which is a completely different sport than it was 30 years ago, and certainly 100 years ago. Um, the technology in ski design, uh, in binding manufacturing, and uh, everything from clothing to, to hard goods uh, to avalanche safety to beacons and now airbags um, has, has changed the sport so drastically it made it safer and made it in my eyes even easier to do but a, a danger of that is uh, people can go farther into the backcountry than they ever could before with, with very light uh, AT gear they can uh, jump higher, they can ski faster. When you're skiing powder on a wide, fat ski, it's a big, stable platform. You can carve turns very easily. 80-year-olds can ski like when they were 50. Uh, it's really cool. But you're also moving at a much higher rate of speed down the slope. You're, there's not as much drag against your body because with old skinny skis, you'd be you'd be down another foot and a half in that snowpack. And with the fat skis, you kind of rise up to the top and, and really fly down the mountain. And unfortunately, in the professional circles of the sport, that culminated a, a few years ago and even continues today with some very tragic fatal accidents um, of folks just catching huge air and going to very remote peaks in North and South America and um, doing ski-based jumping where you release a parachute after jumping off a 800-foot cliff, um, some really crazy stuff that's fun to watch, but um, it, it can go it can go bad very quickly. Yeah, that uh, ski base jumping—it's uh, a natural progression, I suppose. Very foreign to someone like myself, who <laughs> I'm nervous. You know, I'm nervous on a steep hill anyway. <laughs> but uh, I guess for a certain personality type, uh, you think, uh, "Hey, let's get a pair of skis and let's ski off a cliff with a parachute, and that'll be fun." Absolutely, and and it sounds insane, but it actually is a uh, a natural evolution. I mean, you had Jamie Pierre uh, down in the Wasatch who was uh, setting cliff jumping records. Um, you had uh, people that were you 
know, trying to jump farther, faster, from a higher elevation. And um, the next thing was, uh, well, why not do it with a parachute? You can jump wherever you want. And what you have now is uh, the speed flying phenomenon where people are, um, I'm sure you've seen it, or you can find it on YouTube of uh, skiers uh, speed flying down Mount Superior, where it's a very small uh, parachute. It's a, it's a wing, they call it. And it lifts you up and basically keeps you going at a very high rate of speed. So you can touch down and make a few turns. You can lift off and go over a cliff and then fly to another part of the mountain and then touch down again. Um, again, absolutely enthralling to watch, but um, a very small margin for error there. Yeah, you're. It's it's very interesting. That's part of the rush, I imagine. It's uh, you're at the mercy of nature, but you're you're kind of cheating death. You know, you know, you're using some technology and to uh, to go onto the very edge. Yeah, absolutely. You you really are taking it, um, really taking it to the edge, and that's uh, that's also human nature as well. Not for everybody, but there is something in the in the human DNA where you are you want to push it and feel adventure and and I've always thought it was um, actually feeling your mortality and, and touching that um, kind of fine line and it, it actually can make you feel more alive do you uh, I'm not sure if if uh, sort of pressing the envelope is part of what draws you to skiing do you, you just like to get out there and then I don't know feel something what what do you feel when you when you're out there it, it did um, for a long time. I, I, I pushed it pretty hard for a while, especially when I moved out to Jackson Hole as a young buck and saw the Jackson Hole Air Force doing their thing and wanted to ski Central Couloir and wanted to do big backcountry trips and, and um, jump off Insomnia, the big cliff under, uh, under the quad, you know, there, there was, uh, or just above Thunder Quad, actually. And, um, you know, you wanted to do those things. Um, but I had enough scares. Um, the last one coming, uh, gosh, when was that? It was up at Kirkwood, 1999, I think. And um, I ended up going off a cliff that I shouldn't have. And it was early in the season. Uh, kind of traversed in the air over to this uh, southern exposure where there was just a field of rocks waiting for me. And um, I broke my pelvis there in four places and mm. spent that winter recovering. And uh, I, I really slowed it down after that. So if you're able to survive a, a couple things like that, I guess you you, <laughs> you you settle in for maybe a longer career. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I was lucky and I got my skis under me and landed square. And, and that probably saved my spine and maybe my life. But um, I, one, once was enough for, for that edge. We're talking with Porter Fox. He's a longtime uh, Powder uh, magazine uh, editor and writer, uh, and uh, now writes for uh, Nowhere, which is a literary travel writing journal. You can find information there at nowheremag.com. Um, and uh, he's uh, written a book. It came out, uh, I think, last year. It's called Deep, the Story of Skiing and the Future of Snow. Porter Fox will be in Logan for a couple of events on November 5th. These are free and open to the public. First of those is uh, he'll be the speaker at the USU Common Hour. That's on November 5th from 11.30 a.m. to 12.45 p.m. in the Taggart Student Center Auditorium. A book signing follows. 
Then that evening on November 5th at 7.30 p.m., he'll be at the First Presbyterian Church, and uh, that is a free event as well. We uh, are talking with Porter Fox about skiing. We've been talking about skiing. We'll get into talking about climate change. A couple of skiers from Jackson Hole, Wyoming, noticed that snow was disappearing from the western U.S. They wondered how long it would be before it affected the mountains in their backyard, so they called their friend Porter Fox and asked him if he'd be interested in writing a book about climate change and snow and skiing, and he said yes. Uh, This is interesting. We'll get into this following the break. Uh, Following a campaign led by the National Ski Area Association, Porter Fox says people asked him why save skiing when there are more pressing consequences of climate change to worry about, and the answer, he says, is this is not about skiing, it's about snow. It's a vital component of the Earth's climate system and the water cycle. We'll talk about that following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread in Logan. Open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m. Offering a selection of French pastries and a variety of sweet and savory menu items. Details at crumbbrothers.com. And the Cache Valley Center for the Arts, Ellen Eccles Theater, presents the fairy tale ballet, Beauty and the Beast performed by the State Street Ballet to the music of Tchaikovsky and choreographed by Robert Sund, October 29th and 30th. Ticket information available at cashearts.org. Laughter is the best medicine, and you'll get a healthy dose on the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health. It'll be a jam-packed hour on healthy living, including this tasty recipe for... Gluten-free potato gnocchi. We always have a great time, so will you on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRI, Public Radio International. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking with Porter Fox. He's author of a book, Deep, The Story of Skiing and the Future of Snow. He notes that in the last 45 years, one million square miles of spring snow cover has disappeared from the northern hemisphere. Rocky Mountain spring snowpack is down by 20%. Europe has lost half its glacial ice. Winter warming in the U.S. has tripled since 1970, and the warming in the European Alps now three times the global average. By mid-century, climatologists predict that more than half of the Northeast 103 ski resorts will have to close due to rising temperatures. Two-thirds of Europe's ski resorts will likely no longer be snow-reliable in 50 to 70 years. And in the western U.S., we could lose anywhere from 25 to 100 percent of snowpack by 2100, effectively ending ski resorts like Park City. And uh, so this affects uh, people uh, near uh, ski resorts, affects Utah uh, very much. And uh, Porter Fox points out it affects us all because uh, snow is a vital component of the Earth's climate system and water cycle. And that's uh, part of what this book is about. Uh, History of skiing, uh, uh, culture of skiing, but also uh, climate change. That's what we want to get into uh, now. You're uh, welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio, and we're on Facebook as well. Porter Fox is coming to uh, Logan. He'll be speaking at a couple of events on November 5th. He'll be the speaker at the USU Common Hour at 11.30 a.m. in the Taggart Student Center Auditorium on the USU campus. A book signing will follow. 
And then that evening, November 5th, 7.30 p.m., he'll be at the First Presbyterian Church for an open event. Both of those events are free and open to the public. Porter Fox, before we get into uh, climate change, effects on skiing and snow, um, I want to ask you a question about which you might have to be diplomatic. Uh, comparisons of other, you've been all over the world skiing. Utah, of course, on our license plates has the motto, greatest snow on earth. Um, and, and so you can be open and honest with us. It's just me and, and Utah listening. What, uh, what do you think? <laughs> that sounds like a tough crowd. <laughs> um, I, uh, I think it is the greatest snow on earth. And I think specifically, um, little cottonwood Canyon, um, has this really crazy orographic setup that creates, uh, some of the greatest snowfall that I've seen in the States. I, I lived in Jackson for five years and we spent a lot of time on the road coming down to Little Cottonwood Canyon to catch a storm that just didn't hit the Tetons. But um, I do have to say, after that trip to Japan, that uh, they've got you beat on water content, mm-hmm. um, but they don't have the vertical. It's about, I'd say, about half the vertical that you could get at Snowbird or Alta. So it's it's a bit of a trade-off. And, and honestly, uh, you know, the the more you travel around the world skiing, the more you realize that, Skiing is more than just the slopes. It, it's about the culture. It's about um, the village around the resort. It's when you're skiing in Chamonix. There's this great feeling of, of the uh, old history of mountaineering and skiing in that area. When you're skiing in South America, it's very exotic and uh, and really crazy. You ski and I skied in Turkey, and it was um, you know really bizarre and cool. And you would, go down and, and have a, a full Turkish lunch at a mid-mountain restaurant over an open fire. Uh, it's it's uh, it's about the lifestyle and, mm. and the snow. And, and I'm thinking about there's a, there's a passage in the book where you and your photographer, a long flight to Japan, you're going to ski Hokkaido. You get there, I think, late at night. Yeah. By, by the way, you say in, in the air, it, uh, Hokkaido looks a lot like uh, Wyoming in terms of architecture and, and such. But um, it does. But you get there, and uh, you know, I guess I would have gone to the uh, to the hotel, but uh, you guys get on the left immediately. That's, yeah, that's... and we didn't realize that they they had night skiing there. Uh, we didn't really know a whole lot about the resort when we arrived. It was a bit of a last minute trip, and yeah, we were flying over um, flying over the. It was kind of sunset, I think, when we were coming in. And it did look like Wyoming, and I asked someone about that later, and they said, well, after World War II, uh, American architects went over to Hokkaido, which had been bombed heavily, and found, you know, basically rebuilt that island and used uh, Western building technique, and these big cathedral barns and, and the square plots of land were laid out very much like they would be in, in Utah or Idaho or Wyoming. Um, so we felt right at home until... We got in the car, and uh, the GPS was programmed in, uh, with Japanese voice directing <laughs> us to uh, to the place that we were going, which was kind of confusing. And then we got there, unpacked, and all the lights were on in the mountain, and everyone was skiing, and they were playing hip-hop over the speakers and the lift towers. And we hadn't slept in probably 24 hours and said, well, why not? We just put our skis on and had a great powder night. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, I I tend to think of Japan as crowded cities, but uh, you describe Hokkaido as dense forests and, you know, very beautiful. 
it's it's remarkable. It's very um, rustic, and it's it's changed a lot since that first trip there. I went back two years ago, and uh, was amazed. They, they had skyscrapers at the base of that little resort, uh, so they built that one resort Niseko out um, pretty extensively. But still, the countryside is it's it's all log cabins. Um, it's uh, it really is uh, part of the part of the North Country and. You know, I, I've I've seen that in oh, many parts of the world where you get up at elevation, say above three thousand feet, and uh, up in the north where it snows a lot, and everything becomes familiar. The way people dress, the way they navigate through the snow, the way they build their houses. Um, it's uh, again, it's that kind of um, alpine brotherhood around the world that um, makes it really fun to travel this year. Now, the impetus for this book was those, those, those skiers in Jackson Hole. They noticed snow is disappearing. Uh, you've traveled all over the world. Have, have you noticed, anecdotally, snow disappearing? Um, to be honest, I didn't really put my finger on it until I started, uh, started researching this book. I mean, I knew, I grew up in northern Maine. Uh, my house was on the coast, and we skied at Sugarloaf, and I certainly noticed that um, it didn't snow at Christmas anymore at home on the island. And it uh, was hard to find great spring skiing up at Sugarloaf as, as late as we used to. Um, there were years when we were skiing well into May up there, and there were years where, you know, New England resorts, you could ski right until June. Um, but I noticed that. I didn't honestly really know why and uh, took researching this book and looking at um, worldwide statistics over decades that really makes that line, um, that melting line, if you will, very very clear. And that's what the scientists told me again and again, is that human memory is not as accurate as a measuring stick. Hmm. And, and, of course, um, you know, mileage may vary uh, predictions you know have have parameters but the scientists you're talking to are, are saying that there there is a melt coming that snow will decrease yeah it's it's been decreasing for a while actually and that that was one of the more surprising parts of this that uh, you mentioned a million square miles of spring snowpack in the northern hemisphere has vanished in the last 50 years uh, winter warming in the u.s has tripled since uh, 1970, Alps have lost half their glacial ice. 20% of that is since the 1980s. So they've lost half since in the last 150, 170 years, and but 20% of that. So it's accelerating um, as each decade goes by. Um, and then they look forward and say, well, if it continues to accelerate the way it is, and there's no reason why it shouldn't, uh, we haven't addressed uh, greenhouse gases and climate change as aggressively as we need to. Um, you're looking in the future of, by mid-century, uh, snow in the Cascades, um, the spring snowpack going down by 20 to 40 percent, northern Rockies going down by 15 to 30 percent. Um, it's uh, It's a really serious problem that a skier might look at these years and say, hey, you get some good years, you get some bad years, it all comes around. That, that was my mentality. But when you look at the fluctuations over recorded history, say over the last 80 to 100 years, you see, sure, there are natural fluctuations, but it always comes back up. 
the snowpack always comes back up. And what we're seeing now is that snowpack is just not coming back up. Mm. It's going down and down and down and down at an accelerating rate. And you you say it. I was reading an op-ed piece in the New York Times. Uh, you say that the you know, ski industry is is waking up and they're they're trying to go green. But uh, you say that's that's not that's not going to be enough. It's it's not happening again as fast as it needs to. A lot of people say, well, why worry about the ski industry when you have coal-fired power plants? That's the real problem. Well, sure, coal-fired power plants are the real problem. It's about. 30% of the CO2 in, in the U.S. comes from those plants, and hopefully these new EPA rules will um, help to deal with that and help to transition those plants to something that's a little uh, more sustainable and less damaging. Um, but the problem with ski areas is that they've been relying on snowmaking for some time now. At first, I don't think anyone thought in the 1970s and 80s that the explosion of snowmaking was in reaction to global warming. I, I, it just wasn't on the radar then. They just needed more snow, specifically uh, over the holiday season. And um, But they were fighting global warming back then, at a very small level at first, but more and more that winter season is being pinched. It starts later and ends earlier. And for a ski resort to run a, a profitable business, you have to be open for 100 days. You have to be open for the Christmas season. That's about a third of the profit right there. And um, you have to have good snow for President's Day weekend. And so they, they have been fighting this battle for some time. But by pumping more snow on the slope, which is an incredibly uh, energy-intensive operation, that's the biggest electricity bill on the hill comes from snowmaking. It also takes a lot of water. And in the U.S. West, when you're looking at a scarcity of water in the next, uh, over the next century and much, much higher electricity prices, um, that's just not a solution that's going to work. Uh, tell me about you. you uh, near the end of the book, you uh, talk about uh, Andermatt. Is am I pronouncing that correctly? Is in Switzerland, yeah, Switzerland, where they're you know they're they've really gone great guns in this snowmaking, and uh, I guess you know most ski resorts that are being affected are doing this. Um, and you talk about some other effects also of warming, including rocks coming apart and falling down. But I wonder if you start at the the snowmaking that you referenced just just earlier. Uh, you ramp that up, and you can mitigate the problem for a while, I suppose. But it has it has other effects. Um, absolutely. You, you can use snowmaking as a stopgap measure, and it's a good stopgap measure. It'll, it'll keep the resorts open um, while we hopefully try to figure something else out. There are resorts that have already figured something else out, and it's working very, very well for them. Uh, there's Jiminy Peak in the Berkshires in Massachusetts that has a windmill on its summit that provides power for the resort. They also sell power back to the grid. It worked so well for them that they built a second windmill and um, are, are building a second windmill. And that's uh, just that, that's a fantastic way of mitigating climate change. But more so, any climate change mitigation, although there is always upfront costs, is going to save you money in the long run. And that's what a group called Protect Our Winters that I've worked with extensively throughout this project um, has been trying to explain to CEOs and ski resort administrators is that when you go green, for real, not greenwashing, not putting up signs and wearing pins and pushing recycling, we're talking about 
stopping burning fossil fuels. That is the number one goal. And when you start to deal with that problem, every single time you will save money in the long run. So there exists a possibility, a place like Aspen that had a coal mine nearby. Methane was escaping from that coal mine. Aspen now traps, and methane is more than 20 times more potent a greenhouse gas than CO2 is. They now uh, capture that methane, run it through a methane generator. They create enough electricity to power all four of their ski resorts and their entire administrative complex. That works so well for them that they're building a second generator. So we're talking about being fiscally responsible here as a ski area administrator and not putting money into things um, that make you look green, but putting money into things that are going to bring sustainable energy into the ski resort, stop burning fossil fuel, save money. And ultimately, if you can do something like what Aspen and what Jiminy Peak did, you kind of create this isolated pocket where you are creating your own energy. You can therefore blow as much snow as you want, and you can cover the ground as long as it stays cold enough um, for as long a season as you want. And that's beneficial to everybody from ski area administrators down to skiers. How, uh, how warm can it get before snowmaking doesn't work? In other words, you know, how, how, how far can this be a stopgap measure? It's, it's a great question. It's something that a researcher named Daniel Scott out of the University of Waterloo uh, in Canada has been looking at and created a model specifically for that. There hadn't been a model yet um, for uh, the future of the ski industry that included snowmaking, and he added that uh, module into his program. What he found um, was by the end of the century, uh, really all but a few ski resorts out west would be able to su- survive without intense snowmaking uh, to get them open for Christmas and uh, try to maintain a big enough season to stay, stay profitable. Those are resorts like, um, like Vail, um, even Aspen, um, you know, they would have the, they're close enough to a large population that they would have the money to invest and be able to run this snowmaking operation. So, um, you know, it's, you're looking at 7 to 11 degrees of additional warming by the end of the century, by 2100. That's a global average. It warms a lot more over land than it does over water, warms a lot more over the U.S. West, um, it's warming a lot faster than the global average, and it's warming more at altitude than it is at lower altitude. And the last kind of kick in the pants is that it seems to be warming more in night temperatures than it is during day temperatures. And that's a worst-case scenario for snowmaking and, mm. and, um, and for ski resorts. So it's, it's, a, it's a real challenge that uh, people need to get on board ASAP, um, if not to save... Uh, snow and save the mountains than to than to save the business. Yeah, and this is where where uh, statistics come that you you cite in the book uh, come from. Northeast uh, of the 103 ski resorts, uh, half of those would have to close if those predictions hold true. That that warming, two thirds of Europe's ski resorts no longer be snow reliable in 50 to 70 years. In the Western U.S., anywhere from 25 to 100 percent of its snowpack. Uh, so this this would uh, this would be devastating to. Utah economy, for example, relies a lot on a lot on skiing, but it goes beyond that, of course. We'll talk about that after a break. 
I want to have Porter Fox uh, identify those links between snow and climate, that water cycle. And uh, he says when snow disappears, what follows is a dangerous chain reaction, catastrophes like forest fires, drought, etc. We'll get into that when we come back and uh, some more possible solutions following this break. Joe Palka, the NPR science correspondent you hear each week on Utah Public Radio, is coming to Logan, and you can meet him in person. Join UPR staff and Palka at a fundraising dinner for UPR, Thursday, November 13th at 6 p.m. at Herm's Inn. Tickets are $50 per person and include a specially created meal for the occasion, along with Palka's insights into working for the nation's premier news organization. Seating is limited, so reserve your spot now at upr.org. That's upr.org. This week in This American Life, for 22 years, a guy gets jobs as Linnell Hudson. He gets married as Linnell Hudson, has kids as Linnell Hudson, until he's arrested for stealing that name and a social security number from somebody else. He's convicted, and game's up, right? No. I think he's used that identity for so long that he really thought that's who he was. That's this week. Sunday afternoon at 2 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is Porter Fox, a longtime uh, Powder Magazine editor and writer uh, who now uh, writes for the literary travel writing journal Nowhere. You can find information on them at nowheremag.com. And uh, he was asked by some, uh, some skiing friends to look into uh, how climate change is affecting snow. The result is the book Deep, the story of skiing and the future of snow. And we're talking with Porter Fox on the program today. We have another uh, about eight minutes left, and you can join us at 1-800-826-1495. Love to hear from you. What are you seeing anecdotally? Are you seeing a snow uh, patterns change? And what do you think uh, can and should be done? 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraccess at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio, and we're on Facebook as well. And Porter Fox is uh, coming to Logan. That's on November 5th. He'll be speaking on the future of snow during the USU Common Hour from 11.30 a.m. to 12.45 p.m. in the Taggart Student Center Auditorium. A book signing will follow. That presentation is sponsored by the USU Sustainability Council, Quinney College of Natural Resources, Center of Civic Engagement and Service Learning, and the Department of Applied Economics in the College of Agriculture and Applied Sciences. Presentation is part of Science Week at Utah State University. Then that evening, November 5th, Mr. Fox will speak at a community presentation, 7.30 p.m. at the First Presbyterian Church in downtown Logan. Intermountain Bioneers is sponsoring that event. Both events are free and open to the public. So, Porter Fox, um, I wonder if you could uh, take us into the importance of snow to, to the world's water cycle and climate system. You say when snow disappears... Dangerous chain reaction of catastrophes like forest fires, uh, drought, etc. I can understand loss of hydroelectric power. Of course, the rivers aren't flowing as much or dried up aquifers. What about uh, forest fires? What's the connection there? Um, when you have uh, diminishing spring snowpack, so what, what snow is in the off-season is it's natural water storage. And the way it works, clearly, is it slowly melts off. And when we had a lot of glaciers out west, and we had a lot of spring snowpack, it would very slowly meet out the water supply to uh, farms, uh, to rivers, to 
watersheds, uh, even water su- water supplies for cities. What you're seeing now with with an earlier and earlier melt off, an average of about two weeks earlier out west, uh, getting close to three weeks these days, especially in California. Um, when you don't have that melt off, you have a very early and very rapid melt off. Then give it another month or two, and conditions get extremely dry when they normally would not have. That has led uh, almost directly to an increase in wildfires out west. Um, it has led uh, very much to the, gr- the, the uh, drought out west. It's gripping almost 90% of the western United States. It's in a state of drought. Um, aquifers are, are getting extremely low. In the Rocky Mountains, in the central Rockies alone, 70 million people depend specifically on snowmelt for their water supply coming out of those western Rockies. Um, that is, uh, that's a staggering number. And when you're looking at predictions of 25 to 100% less spring snowpack in the Rockies by the end of the century, which is going to be here before you know it, um, where are those people going to get water? Yeah, that's, it's, it's pretty stark, pretty stark. Um, so what have, you've talked about innovative solutions in snowmaking, innovative solutions in truly going green at ski resorts, but I think you've uh, been telling me that overall, the, the big picture, the, the solutions for snow are the same as solutions for climate change overall. Um, absolutely. And, and I think what's very important is for people to realize uh, what is at stake, and there's the motivation then to make the change. And in Utah alone, you, you get about uh, 4 million skiers, skier visits a year on average. Um, during the low snowfall year, this is a study that Protect Our Winters did uh, with um, some researchers at UNH. In a low snow year, uh, Utah will typically get 14% uh, lower skier visits in a sn- low snowfall year uh, compared to a high snowfall year. The cost of that to the state is $87 million and over 1,000 fewer jobs uh, compared to a snowy year. Well, you back up four or five bad snow years like they've had in California. Uh, the California ski industry, is a winter tourism industry, is a $15 billion industry with 7,500 jobs at stake. So there's the motivation to um, do something very quickly. What needs to be done, number one, is national policy change on how we create energy and how we use energy, making a smarter grid, shutting down these antiquated coal-fired power plants, replacing them with something that is more sustainable and lower impact. Um, Individuals lowering their carbon footprint by making their house uh, more efficient, by driving more efficient cars, um, by uh, riding a bike if they're living in a city instead of uh, commuting by car, where, wherever that's possible. Those are Some of those are tough changes to make. Again, they, they put more money in your bank at the end of the month, um, and they're going to put more, they're going to keep more snow in the mountains, too, if we can do that, do that quickly. There's about a 20 to 30-year window here to affect real change to try to slow down climate change to the point where we will still have skiing, we will still have snow in the mountains. It is still possible, but there's about one generation uh, to make that happen before it's just too late and this problem starts to snowball to a point where we might not be able to control it at all. Uh, 
So I guess you're you're uh, I think you're you're speaking a lot of, a lot about this. Has has your speaking changed from you know skiing to climate change? Absolutely. I, I uh, my book was presented on the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives floor last year, and and um, I did a thirty stop tour last winter uh, with one of the publishers. We drove all through the West and um, gave a presentation and talked about snow and climate change. I did the same thing in the East, and right now I'm on a college tour um, coming out to Salt Lake City, like you said. Um, and uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's been very rewarding. It's been great to have a, a conversation with people. And not just I'm not just talking to people who are on the more liberal side of things. I'm talking to ranchers. I'm talking to union members, I'm talking to government officials, politicians, people that um, live in the snow and um, are are really uh, worried about what's going to happen to their backyard. Well, Porter Fox is uh, coming to Logan, as I've been mentioning. Uh, mention that one more time. We'll talk about the future of snow during the USU Common Hour on November 5th, starting at 11.30 a.m. A book signing will follow. That's free and open to the public. It's part of Science Week at Utah State University. And Porter Fox will, that evening, uh, November 5th, be at the First Presbyterian Church in downtown Logan at 7.30. Uh, that event is free and open to the public as well. His book is Deep, The Story of Skiing and the Future of Snow. Porter Fox, a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And uh, coming up on Monday, we'll talk some more about water in a different form. The book is Desert Water, The Future of Utah's Water Resources. The uh, editor of the book is Hal Cremel of Weber State University. More on that, of course, on Monday. Hope you'll join us tomorrow for a science-related topic. And thank you for joining me today for Access Utah. Have you winterized your roses? Are your perennials trimmed? Have you wrapped your fruit trees for the winter? There's still plenty to do, but time to do it. Mark Anderson is in studio this Thursday at 10 for the Zesty Garden to help you with your fall task list. There's also a recipe for Wensley cake and a petals and prose reading from Nancy Williams. And Adri Roberts also discusses how to use a large pressure canner for food preservation, including meat, on Yes You Can. That's this Thursday at 10 a.m. on the Zesty Garden from Utah Public Radio. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about a group of Russian pioneers who sought a place to build their religious colony far from cities and government interference. Where else would they come but Utah? First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, director of the Utah Humanities Council. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. UHC is proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories as part of our statewide tour of the Smithsonian Exhibition, Journey Stories. Tune in each week for a new Utah Journey story from the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Invest dimes and reap dollars in Park Valley, Utah. That was the promise of the Pacific Land and Water Company in its 1911 brochure, promoting land for sale northwest of the Great Salt Lake. The Salt Lake Company was one of many developers that purchased large tracts of land previously granted to the railroad and then marketed parcels to buyers from out of state. The brochure featured images of orchards, lush fields of grain, and plump cattle and sheep. The pitch was enough to persuade a group of 20 Russian families to purchase several thousand acres in Park Valley and move there in 1914 to create a self-sustaining farming community where they could freely worship. These families were Molokans, 
religious dissidents recently exiled from Russia who had settled in Los Angeles. But California, where civil law reigned, was not the utopia they had imagined. In fact, the Box Elder News reported, it is to get away from American customs that the Russians are coming to Utah. They object to the check put on them in California. They object strenuously to their young people adopting American customs. And it is their intention to go to a partly isolated locality where they will be free to follow customs such as prevail in the land of their birth. The Mollicans traveled to Kelton, Utah by train, and from there by wagon to Dove Creek, where they set about building houses, digging wells, and clearing land for farming. Of course, the dry sagebrush flats of Box Elder County were nothing like the lavish abundance advertised by the Pacific Land and Water Company. Fresh spring green turned quickly to hot summer brown. Despite being experienced farmers, their efforts were unsuccessful. The last family abandoned Park Valley by 1917, and by 1920, all had returned to Los Angeles. The Molokans left behind their village and a tiny cemetery with graves marked in Russian, along with their dreams of utopia. Sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. On the next Humankind, they were mocked, ridiculed, beaten. Sometimes they were clubbed and kicked and slapped. The story of Americans who opposed World War I and refused to fight in it. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. Thursday night at 8.30 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah on Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Time now is 10 o'clock.